Father, I stand before you and beg that you would speak through me tonight, speak gospel truths through me, speak life through me, speak encouragement through me, through your word, through your powerful word. I pray that faith and hope would be created in my life and in the lives of everyone here tonight. We ask you to work powerfully and expect it. Amen. Well, I've been anticipating speaking on tonight's topic for some time now. I wasn't sure if I'd be sharing what I will be sharing tonight with with, uh, just individuals, with friends, or with smaller groups, or a larger group this size. And this anticipation has existed because God is doing something unique and challenging in this season of my life. We're going to continue to look at critically important character traits that we are to develop as followers of Jesus Christ tonight. My prayer for you is that by the end of the night, you will see both faith and hope as essential attributes for you to continually develop in order to thrive in your relationship with God during your college years and for the rest of your life. I think I'm safe in assuming that very few of you are acquainted with Kurt Richter's study on the phenomenon of sudden death in animals. No, yeah, no one. Okay. Richter was a psychobiologist and geneticist at Johns Hopkins University in the 1920s, worked there all the way through the 70s, and much of his research was conducted on wild and domesticated rats. One of Richter's experiments involved conditioning rats to swim for extended amounts of time. His research showed that rats, whether domesticated or wild, could swim on average about 10 to 15 minutes before giving up and drowning. Some people take issue with Richter's research methods, calling him a sadistic rat torturer, because he just watches rats drown and die. So just in case PETA were to find this talk online somehow, let me just say I'm not endorsing what Richter was doing in his experiments and how he obtained his data, but the outcome of the conditioning that he was proving is astounding. Richter eventually introduced a priming activity before the experiment where the rats were put into the water and then taken out, put back into the water and taken out. So essentially these rats were being coached to believe that escape was possible. At any moment, a hen might reach down into their dire situation and save them. When placed back in the water for the experiment, some of these rats were able to swim for up to 60 hours. What Richter was conditioning in these rats was hope, actually. The following is an excerpt from his published research. The situation of these rats scarcely seems one demanding fight or flight. It is rather one of hopelessness. Whether they are restrained in the hand or confined in the swimming jar, the rats are in a situation against which they have no defense. In this priming activity, the rats quickly learn that the situation is not actually hopeless. Thereafter, they again become aggressive, try to escape, and show no signs of giving up. The observation is that after elimination of the hopelessness, the rats do not die. I share this story because much of Richter's academic research actually stemmed from wanting to answer similar questions about people as to why some people 
experience hopelessness so deeply, they actually pass away. Strangely enough, after considering his experiment, I've come to the conclusion that there are more similarities between people, myself included, and these rodents than I would have anticipated initially. As Christians, it's important for us to develop faith and hope, but it is imperative that these qualities are directed solely to Jesus Christ. Sadly, as sinful people who live in a fallen world, in a broken world, we often respond to suffering in ways that do not demonstrate that our hope is found in Jesus Christ alone. If the object of our faith and hope is not firmly established in Jesus, then when, when the troubles of this life surround us, we will seek refuge in idols that offer no lasting rede- relief or redemption. As I considered my tendency to run from suffering or to lose hope or to seek comfort in things that will not fully satisfy, several passages came to mind as potentially helpful remedies to look at. Tonight we're going to be exploring several sections of Scripture, but we're predominantly going to camp out in Romans chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and flip over to Romans. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, please write that on your blue card. Crew would love to get you one, buy it for you, and give it to you. Uh, And it will also be on the screen behind me. Romans 5, 1 through 5 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. Our passage tonight begins with the word, therefore. So this word should trigger an alarm in your head that signals you, that you need to read the preceding sentence or sentences. Verse 25 of chapter 4 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Chapter 5 flows out of the fact that Jesus Christ took upon himself the penalty of separation from God that all sin deserves. He was crucified, he died, he was buried, and then he was raised back to life by the almighty God of the universe. And for what purpose? Verse 25 says, it was for the purpose of justifying believers. My dad's a lawyer, so he's well acquainted with the term justification because it's a legal term. Whenever you come across the word justified or justification in your Bible, it's really helpful to picture a courtroom setting where a judge is handing down a verdict. When a judge declares someone not guilty, He's justifying them and their actions. And this is merely a small-scale human version of how God has ordered his universe. Romans 5.1 shows that God, the ultimate judge over all creation, he declares people justified, righteous, or not guilty based solely on their faith in Jesus Christ. Though our sin and rebellion earns us separation from God, He declared Christ guilty in our place, 
Christ paid our penalty, and the perfect record of Jesus was credited to those who by faith trust that this sacrificial act of Jesus is what they need to stand guiltless before a perfectly holy God. The resurrection that we celebrated during Easter two weekends ago is proof that God accepted Jesus Christ's payment for sin. This is life-changing, but Paul's not even close to being finished yet. He goes on to describe the three main benefits and blessings that are due to us because of our justification. First, justification earns Christians peace with God. If you work this backwards logically, verse 1 asserts that those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ are not justified and therefore are not at peace with God. The devastating but true reality is that any sin and rebellion against God means war with him. God rightly will not tolerate any challenge to his reign and rule of the universe, and any disobedience to his lordship is exactly that. Thankfully, though, in his furious love for people, God made a provision to end the hostility between him and sinners through the crucifixion and resurrection of his son. Faith in Jesus Christ brings about justification, which means peace with God. The second blessing of our justification is found in verse two here. It says, through Christ we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This access that we've been granted speaks to the personal relationship that we have with God. As we see in verse 1, justification ends the negative hostility that is due to us by our sin. But here in verse 2, the outcome is stated positively. Justification enables Jesus Christ to usher Christians into the throne room of God where we can have relationship with him, personal relationship with him. And what's so beautiful about this gracious access that we've been granted is that we get to stand in it. Paul's idea here of standing in it means means to remain or persist in it. That means that the relationship that you and I have with God if we have placed our faith in his son will not change. Once we are justified by our faith in Jesus Christ, we are justified for all time and nothing can ever change that fact. Finally, justification brings about hope in the glory of God. What Paul has in mind here at the end of verse 2 is an anticipation of what's to come. The way that we typically throw around the word hope isn't very helpful to understand what Paul has in mind here. We hope that the weather will be warmer next week. We hope that our finals aren't too hard. We hope that the Boston Red Sox will win the World Series this year. Thank you. Go Sox. (laughs) But the definition of hope hope here that we see Paul use, the Greek has, has this connotation of conviction or certainty, knowing that these things eventually are going to happen. That's what Paul means by hope. He is certain and sure that even though we only experience small glimpses of the glory of God on this earth, we will eventually experience the full extent of his glory in heaven one day. Tim Keller notes that these three benefits of justification correspond to the three tenses of our salvation. He says, we have been freed from our past record of rebellion. 
We are free in the present to enjoy personal relationship with God, and we will one day most certainly experience the freedom of the life lived in full, awesome presence of God's glory. In other words, those who have been justified by faith have been saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. They are being saved, present tense, from the power of sin in their lives, and they will one day fully, future tense, be saved from the presence of sin. Justification by faith in Christ is very good news, and its result is hope, as we'll see in verses three through five, in its deepest and richest sense. Even though hope is a result of faith, Paul doesn't directly move from faith to hope here, though. Rather, he begins verse 3 by saying what? That we are to rejoice in our suffering. I love what Paul does here. Paul has his eyes set on heaven as he unpacks the incredible blessings of our salvation and justification. But he has his feet squarely on the ground as he's well aware of the fact that much of life consists of pain and suffering. Paul might have understood the depths of the wonderful implications of the gospel better, better than any other person. And, and it shows in the epistles. They are just marked by joy. Yet he never paints this rosy, pie-in-the-sky picture of what it actually looks like to follow Christ. Rather, he continually insists that no servant is above his master and that if our Savior suffered, that this too is going to mark our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. In Paul's mind, suffering is a necessary step in the process of moving from faith to the certainty of hope. Paul is well aware that the easy life has the ability to dull our spiritual senses and place our hope in the things of this world. Therefore, it's a mercy that God uses suffering to shake us from the delusion that anything in this earth other than Jesus Christ can actually satisfy us. Let's look at verses three and four to see the progression that begins with suffering and ultimately leads to hope. First, suffering produces endurance. Other translations use the word perseverance here, but with either option, the overarching idea is that suffering realigns our focus to the race that we are in the midst of running. Suffering reminds us to endure and persevere as we can be prone to distractions that tempt us to forget that all the blessings of justification are true of our lives currently. This endurance and perseverance naturally creates character in the life of the believer as we see in our passage. So character deals with people who have been tested and have proven themselves mature and steady. Think of a person that you would consider to have a lot of character. There's no doubt in my mind that the person that's coming to mind for you is a person of character because they've struggled and fought through adversity and pain and trials. Character is never forged in comfort and ease. Finally, character produces a deep, rich certainty. Character produces hope. Paul's argument is that hope cannot be produced without suffering and that only hope will not disappoint us because it assures us of God's love that he has for us. Hope reminds us that no matter how difficult our current circumstances may be, 
that the joy of our justification before God remains certain. This means that suffering and comfort, I'm sorry, this means that suffering, not comfort and ease, is the best context in which we as Christians can understand and experience God's love. This may sound a little paradoxical to you right now, maybe a little counterintuitive, but let me draw on some of my recent experiences to explain this a little bit further. I shared with many of you at the beginning of the year that Sarah and I had experienced two miscarriages walking into the year. Pain and suffering has very much been a part of the last two years of my life, and it's only grown in its intensity over the last four months. At the end of November, Sarah and I lost our third child. And we weren't able to welcome it into the world. After our third miscarriage, Sarah and I experienced anguish that we can barely describe in words. All I know is that it felt like it, it existed and emanated from the deepest parts of my body. To watch my wife anticipate the transition from just the two of us into being a mother and seeing that be ripped away from her three times in a row was almost unbearable. The death of our third child was so excruciating because in the midst of this heart-wrenching pain, we had to start asking ourselves questions that we never thought we would have to ask. Are we even able to have children? Why would God withhold parenthood from us when he grants it to the vast majority of people? Why won't God bless us with children when he blesses abusive and neglectful people with children? How can God claim to love us while sovereignly allowing us to experience the death of not one, not two, but three children? December and January were unquestionably the two hardest months of my life as I wrestled with many questions like these and struggled to pray and struggled to open my word, open God's word, open the Bible. Ultimately, this tragedy led me to ask one of the most important questions that any human being can ask. If there is a God, who is he and what is he like? I believe that there are only three logical conclusions to this question. One, there is no God, and Sarah and I have unfortunately drawn a short straw in this aspect of our lives, and that's it. Two, there is a God, but he lacks either complete power or complete goodness. Or three, the perfectly loving, wise, and powerful God of the Bible is exactly who he says he is, and he's working to redeem our pain. The massive difference between the first two options and the third is summed up in one simple word, hope. If our ultimate reality is humans living in a universe that is either random or controlled by a God who does not have the capability or care to prevent suffering in my life, then any true shot at actual hope does not exist. 
Romans 5 highlights what A.W. Tozer says in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? God's goodness and love are clear in our passage as he saves, justifies, seeks relationship with us, and gives us his spirit. God's wisdom is clear as he's orchestrated our salvation and an eternity where we can be together with him. And finally, God's power is clear in our passage as he raised Christ from death back to life. The God of the Bible stands unchallenged in his ability to restore, renew, and redeem even the most painful forms of suffering, and this alone creates hope. Now, I understand that Sarah and I are at a very different point in our lives than the vast majority of you since you're college students. But whatever you might be facing currently, God is unchanging. So the principles that he's taught me about my own personal pain and suffering, those principles are the same for anyone else's pain and suffering because of who God is. Suffering for some of you might be dealing with the death of a parent or sibling, or close friend. Some of you or your family members may have cancer or an undiagnosed disease that limits your normal functionality while you watch healthy families living the unconstrained life that you so badly desire. For others of you, it might be struggling with a current or past abusive relationship that has wounded you emotionally It feels like you're going to carry that baggage with you for the rest of your life. As we're considering the pain that we and many other people face in this world, let me be clear, God is not the author of sin, pain, and suffering. Furthermore, God takes no pleasure in the death and pain that Sarah and I have experienced. In fact, it grieves him. And the pain and suffering that you have and might in the future experience grieves God. Yet he does sovereignly allow pain and suffering while also promising to work it for our good and his glory. But let's assign blame where blame is due. We live in a sin-stained world where Satan has been given temporary dominion and where our sins and the sins of the rest of humanity have brought about more and more pain and suffering. Satan and sin are to blame for my suffering and for your suffering. It's it's painfully obvious that the world that we live in is not devoid of troubles. If you've not yet faced significant trials in your life, there's a good chance that you will before the end of your life And that's why it's absolutely necessary for us to develop these essential characteristics as followers of Jesus Christ. I want to recommend a book to you. It's it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. My father-in-law bought this for me for Christmas. I'm about halfway through it. So I haven't even finished it yet, but it's one of the best books I've ever read. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Whether you have in your past are currently experiencing, or, I mean, it's certain you will experience pain and suffering in the future. 
So having this book on your shelf is, I, I just can't recommend it enough. Romans 5 does not allow for us to give ourselves over to depression or despondency and just wait for heaven to come. It calls us to rejoice in our sufferings, and we can only hope to do so by developing and asking the Lord to deepen our faith in Him and our hope in Him. Faith and hope are crucial traits for Christians to develop on this side of heaven. If we are not intentionally developing these characteristics, then when suffering comes our way, we will be incredibly vulnerable to hopelessness and idolatry. Hopelessness calls us to give up and doubt God when life gets hard. And idolatry tempts us to place our ultimate faith and hope in a comfortable life, in a good diagnosis, in family, in health. Let me repeat that again. Idolatry, idolatry tempts us to place our ultimate faith. That list is, is not bad but we can't place our ultimate faith in those things. God loves us enough to allow suffering in our lives so that we won't place our hope in the things that we're never meant to and do not have the ability to bring us true satisfaction and fulfillment and joy. Instead of giving us a pain-free life, God graciously gives us himself. Remember from verse three that suffering brings endurance which allows us to focus on the most important thing. That is exactly what has been happening in my life. The loss of three children has forced me to run after God in ways that I never would have if he'd granted us children when we wanted them. In this season of my life, I've learned far more about God's timing, his sovereignty, his affections, his wisdom than I'd ever understood before. But most of all, I have sat in awe of God's furious love that he has for me. In my most lonely and painful hours, God has tenderly assured me of his vast and unchanging fatherly love. Just as a loving father allows his child to experience the temporary sting of the doctor's needle, so our heavenly father's love for us is demonstrated in allowing us to experience the hardships of life. Thankfully, our God does not waste any amount of pain and suffering. Rather, he promises to use it for our good and for his glory. To understand this, we just have to look at the cross. No pain or suffering that you and I could ever face was more undeserved or more excruciating than when God poured out the full extent of his wrath on his son. Now, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are justified and never have to experience God's wrath or separation from God. And that is incredibly loving the cross is the epitome of who God is and what he does with suffering. When I look at the cross, I cannot doubt God's love for me or his ability to redeem even the most horrific situation. So I look forward in anticipation of how he's going to redeem the pain and suffering that Sarah and I are currently walking through. 
Suffering not only helps us to focus more clearly on God in this life, but it also has the unique ability to create great amounts of hope in us for the glories of heaven. Suffering creates within us a longing for our true home. I mentioned a few weeks ago that Revelation 21 has had a profound impact on my life as of late. I'm going to read it for you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Only in heaven will the effects of sin be fully removed. Every tear that sin and death have caused us to shed will be wiped away by our Heavenly Father. We will never again have to experience an ounce of mourning, crying, or pain, and death will be undone forever. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of any pain or suffering that you are currently experiencing or will experience in the future, I urge you to fix your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ alone. Only faith in him allows you to be justified in the presence of a holy God, and only Jesus can and will completely heal, redeem, and make all things new. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your radical love. But we admit that that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so we ask for the grace and perseverance to understand the suffering that you allow in our lives. Father, we ask you to make us more like your perfect son, Jesus Christ. I pray that our heart's cry would also be Not our will be done, but your will, Father. It's in the name of our Savior that we pray. Amen.